This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this episode we are going on a truly unique trip. When everything you could ever want to know about a place is literally a click away, what does it mean to be a true explorer? Do you have to discover something new? Do you have to trek through impenetrable jungles and cross deadly deserts to measure up? Or do you just have to do something much simpler and more accessible to most of us. This is a story about how to do that, how to switch off your phone, tear up the guidebook, and step into the unknown where all that good stuff, that great adventure happens. Are you ready to get lost? Yeah, me too. Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is best-selling author and award-winning travel writer, Brian Thacker. Brian's written seven travel books, all of them based on insane premises for adventure like this one, including such brilliantly titled books as The Naked Man Festival and other excuses to fly around the world. And my personal favorite, rule number five, no sex on the bus. Desperate to know what those other four rules are now. But this story is based on his book called Where's Wallace? Travels Without a Guidebook. Here's how he describes it. Paul Theroux, Bill Bryson, Michael Palin all have ventured forth to provide vivid and compelling accounts of exotic peoples and strange lands, but none has ever been daring or perhaps stupid enough to arrive in a country not knowing a single thing about the place until now. In the spirit of Stanley and Livingstone and a little bit of Monty Python, I added that bit, Brian Thacker set out for far-flung lands armed with nothing more than an air ticket. He didn't know the local language, the currency, or even the climate of the various places he was heading for. Most importantly, he didn't take a guidebook, he didn't even do a web search, he just left it all to chance. Yeah, we're going to have some fun with this one. So if you want to connect with Brian, buy his books, which you should, or just drop him a line, head over to brianthacker.tv to find out more. He's a super fun, cool guy. I loved hanging out with him, and I think you're going to love hanging out with him too. That's brianthacker.tv to check out all those books and hang out with the man himself. So we're just about to get going with the story, but super quickly before we begin, remember, if you're enjoying this podcast, please help spread the word. Tell a friend, leave a review. It all makes a huge difference. And if you really, really like it and don't like ads and want a whole heap of additional benefits, including some exclusive content that no one else is getting starting this summer, then please consider buying me a pint. For the cost of a single frothy beverage a month, you'll get all of that and my eternal gratitude and a virtual hug for helping to keep this show going. I'm super serious though, guys. It means the world to me. All of you patrons out there who've signed up already, thank you. And all you guys that are thinking about it, thank you for considering it and thank you for whatever you can do. But don't worry about that just now because Brian is about to have an idea that will send him spiraling into a crazy adventure to some of the remotest corners on earth. We're going to tear up the guidebook and step into the unknown. I was watching the Olympic Games 
and the opening ceremony and all the teams come out and I'm a traveler and I have my Times Atlas of the World which I you know flick through all the time and the announcers called out a country there's like five people in a team that said Santomi and Prince Sabah and I thought oh I've never heard of that how come I've never heard of that so I went to Google and there was anything and everything you wanted to know and see about the country and not just politically or historically but for tourists and this is a place that you wouldn't think would be a tourist place but there was every you know tours and hotels and live cameras from the hotels looking at the beach and uh, I thought by that and the fact that there's guidebooks to pretty much every country in the world it's taken away the surprise of travel so I thought wouldn't it be great just to turn up somewhere no research nothing at all just turn up and then just travel around Every minute is going to be an adventure because I have no idea what's happening. By the way, if you're wondering, Sao Tome and Principe, an African island nation close to the equator, is part of a volcanic chain featuring striking rock and coral formations, rainforests and beaches. Yeah, exactly. First page of Google, first sentence, one click away and I know everything. And I've seen everything too, by the way. Great photos. It's gorgeous. I want to go. But that's the problem. The world is literally at our fingertips. And what Brian realized, and what this whole story is about really, is that while knowing is great, it's useful, it also takes the mystery and discovery out of travel, it takes the magic out of it. And it turns your trip into that most dreaded of adventure terms, an itinerary. Like explorers of old, he writes, I wanted to arrive without knowing anything at all about the destination. I wanted to step off the plane or bus and not even know what language I'd need to speak. Brian wanted to experience that most dwindling of resources in our modern world when everything is literally a click away at the tip of your fingertips. He wanted to experience the mystery, the unknown. So he set to work and figured out four other places that he knew absolutely nothing about and then he was just going to turn up and see what happened. Togo, Benin, Kyrgyzstan and an island called Wallace. There was only one flight a week to Sao Tome in Principe and it left out of Gabon, its nearest African neighbour. So that's exactly where he headed to next. I flew into Gabon. I didn't have a visa for Gabon but I was just going to be at the airport for about 12 hours, I think. And I thought I'd just go down to the ticket office and buy a ticket. So I got to the airport and got in and then I said, where's the ticket office? And they said, no, you have to go into the, you have to go into the city. And I didn't have a visa. So the security guard let me go outside just to go downstairs to get something to eat. And it was like the great escape. I was hiding behind these pylons and I escaped from the airport and got a taxi into the city and got myself a ticket and I got back in and I was so excited and then I had a night at the airport to wait until the next morning and it was just it was just basically a glorified tin shack really and um, I had to sleep on this on the chairs were like like barbecue grills and so uncomfortable and there was loud music and people getting on at the plane and anyway so when I woke up in the morning um, I went to go to check-in but it's not a check-in that you normally used to with a, a nice line of people and a, someone on a computer, it was just a free-for-all. And there was just a, with a scrap, someone with a scrap piece of paper ticking off names. And they'd oversold the plane. And I wasn't, I wasn't very good at shoving my way to the front and so I missed the flight. The next flight wasn't for another week. So 
I thought, what am I going to do? I ended up staying there for like three days. Yeah, it turns out not knowing anything about a place makes it very hard to get to. Things went wrong for Brian straight away. They'd oversold the plane, and the next one wasn't for a week. It was a disaster. He spent three days in the airport sleeping on those barbecue grill chairs, wondering what the hell he was going to do. And then he had a brainwave. Screw Sao Tome and Principe. I'm going straight to Togo instead. So the whole reason this entire madcap scheme came about in the first place was to go to these two tiny islands that he found in the Olympics, and now he wasn't going there at all. But that's okay, because the unexpected was what this adventure was all about. So he flew to Togo, got out of the airport, asked the first taxi driver he found to take him to a hotel, any hotel, as long as it was cheap and clean. He had absolutely no idea where he was or what to do, and he couldn't get the smile off his face. So I spent a couple of days there just getting used to the place. It was just stinking hot. I'd have to get up in the middle of the night just to four or five times a night to have a, sh- a cold shower because it was just so hot. There was no air conditioning. But anyway, I ended up buying a map from someone at the market uh, and the map of Togo. So at least, oh, this is what Togo looks like. On the map had a picture of, they just had pictures of little symbols of a hotel or a petrol station or um, and I had a picture that looked like a king's castle in Togoville, and I went, oh, that looks interesting. So I went there, and there's no there's no buses or taxis or anything there. Every car is like a taxi, really. You just hail down a car, and if they're going down, you get piled into a car with no doors. And I got dropped off in the middle of nowhere, and I'm trying to figure out, well, I don't even know where I am to get to Togoville. And they dropped me off at a lake, and you could see to the other side, and it was all thick jungle. I had to walk through thick jungle to get to the lake, and there was just wooden pirogues, which are these little wooden boats where, the, where just the locals who hardly wearing anything would stand up and they'd paddle you across. So they took me across to the other side, and the, the village itself was all red dirt, and all the, the buildings were made of, made of red mud, um, and it was just... Families all dressed in brightly coloured clothes, all sitting out in the streets. Um, you know, it just had a fantastic atmosphere about the place as well. And it was, um, there's like voodoo temples there. And it was just a, you know, somewhere not many tourists would go to, I imagine. And um, the first person said, you need to meet the king. That's right. No idea where he was or what he was doing. And the first thing that happens is he meets a king. And he wasn't the first person that came to visit him either. He was taken to a small concrete bunker on the edge of town, sat down in a chair in front of the throne, which was basically another chair with some white linen draped over it, and told to wait. All over the walls were photos of the king with various visitors over the years, including one with the Pope, believe it or not. In that photo, the king was decked out in gorgeous flowing traditional robes. But when he did finally turn up to see Brian, he had sweatpants and a Nike t-shirt on, so you know where Brian is on the pecking order. But King Plaku Malapamoyanette V turned out to be a really nice bloke. They chatted for a while, ate some snacks, and the king charged him a fiver for the privilege, stuck it in his sweatpants, and waddled out of the bunker. The royal meeting was over, but that's okay. He hung out in the village, gate-crashed a viewing party of Togo's Soccer World Cup qualifier, and had a run-in with some dodgy Togolese curry. Apparently, the chef had forgot to cook it properly because he was so vexed by the fact that they were losing 1-0 to Mali. The next day, he paddled back to the other side of the lake and looked around. He still had no idea where he was or where the next adventure would take him. 
This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I was I was still on the coast at this point and it was so hot. I'd never been anywhere where it's been so hot and humid before in my life. So I looked at the map and I saw a town that was up north up in the mountains. And look, they said mountain, but even though it was only like... 970 metres high, and I thought, I'll head up there. So I caught a couple of taxis and went up to this place called Capalame. And, um, uh, again, I just went for a hike up into to, to the mountains just to try to cool down and, again, just didn't see a single tourist. You know, when I was halfway up the mountain and I didn't really know how to get there, I met a local guy, Apo, his name was, and he said he was training to be a guide, and he, he said he'd be my guide. And luckily he was my guide because the, the trek up, to the mountain was just through thick jungle. And at one point we walked through a valley and it was like just colour everywhere in the green. And I thought, what's all this colour? And we walked through and all of a sudden the colour started lifting. And the whole valley was full of butterflies. And they were literally like they'd land on your arm, be like a bright yellow one here and a blue one there. And it was one of the just most beautiful sights I've ever seen just walking through this valley. And and the butterflies, you know, there's no one else going through there. So, the, you know, they, it was just so wild and free. After that, he took me to his village and to have uh, a meal with his sister. And the village was just beautiful. All the, all the doors and um, window shutters were all hand-painted with pictures of tribal people or animals or, you know, flowers or so. And it was just like this place would... I just don't think we'd ever get any tourists, and it's just like so beautiful. And, um, you know, like that to experience things like that was just incredible. The Valley of the Butterflies, he writes, seemed to move under waves of brilliant color, alive with thousands upon thousands of butterflies dancing gently above the lush foliage. It was one of the most beautiful sights he had ever seen. And they did make it to the top of the mountain too, Mount Cloto, an open glade of tall grass rustling in a cool breeze, looking out to small red mud homes across the Ghanalese border. And then from the summit down to Apo's village, passing avocado trees, mandarin trees, pineapples and plantations of coffee, mango and banana. People in Togo are very poor, but we don't go hungry, Apo said. And nor would Brian. In his village, Apo's sister, Nu, cooked him a slap-up lunch of coliko, fried yams with rice and mangoes. 
was a beautiful experience and all the more beautiful because it was spontaneous, because it was unexpected, because just like those explorers of old, he'd walked over a mountain ridge and discovered, as if for the first time in history, with surprise and astonishment and delight, a valley of butterflies shimmering in the sun. And that generosity and outright luck he experienced in Togo was to follow him to his next step into the unknown. Two islands in the middle of the Pacific almost no one knows about and where the name for the book came from, Wallace and Fortuna. But again, having no idea, I knew it was a French protectorate, so I assumed they'd be speaking French. But um, again, had no idea landing at the airport and it's basically just a large grass hut and lots of people greeting each other in the car park's full and then they sort of emptied out and then there was no one there and I realised it's not a tourist destination, there's no buses, there's no taxis. Like, unless you know someone, you can't get out of the airport. So I just had to start just walking down the road. <laughs> and then uh, a, a girl was sitting on a veranda and she said, hello, and I said, hello, and she says, what are you, you know, what are you doing? And I said, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to get into the town. Is there a town? <laughs> and she said, uh, yeah, sort of. You know, there is a town. And I said, is there any hotels? And she said, there's three. And I went, oh, good, there's a hotel. I said, can you take me to the cheapest one? And so she took me to this hotel. So I just went for, for a walk around on the first day. And it was beautiful. Stopped little villages. And I spent this long time in a, in a graveyard because it's the most beautiful graveyard I've ever seen. It was all hand-painted white with just so many beautiful flowers. You know, like, it was like a pretty graveyard. But it is really just so interesting just turning up you know, I had an idea of the Pacific Island looked like, but just what is this place? Who are these people? And, you know, I found out it was a kingdom and there was a king who looked at the king's palace, you know, and his palace looked like a, an Australian pub in the middle of uh, the outback, you know, like this tin shed. And there's all people sitting on the, on the, on the veranda drinking Fosters. I stayed in the hotel and they took me to Tomas the next morning, you know, and everybody in the entire village pretty much turned up to Mass, you know. And there's cars turning up, there'd be... 15 people in the back and they're very heavy people. You could see the car just weighed down and they're pulling up in front of this beautiful, it's by far the largest building in the entire island is the church. And interesting architecture, you know, like it looked like a, it was a few, some seashells used and it like it was pink and um, a large church and the king was there and he had his pew in the church. And um, I said I don't normally go to church but it was, uh, it was just beautiful, just the singing, you know, the voices and people playing the guitar. Um, and I think, I reckon 80% of it was singing, which was just so nice, you know, and it was just so joyous. And everyone's all in there dressed in their Sunday best, of course, you know, um, with flip-flops, of course, but in their Sunday best. And then, um, uh, you know, then the church all streamed out and everyone would have gone back for their big Sunday lunch, you know. Uh, just a beautiful thing to see. Um, there's no car rental, so... I asked if I could get a hold of a car or some way to get around the island, and so they just gave me their niece's car. So we spent the day just driving around the island. I came across another huge church and a lake where it was like a, it was a deep crater lake, and there's no signs or tourists, and it like almost went over the edge and went whoa and grabbed onto a tree, and there was like a deep uh, crater with a, a beautiful lake on the bottom, and that was like my first day. And more days like that too. Swimming with parrotfish in a natural rock pool 150 feet out in the middle of the ocean. The water's so clear, he says. It was like having his own aquarium. 
Climbing the island's highest mountain, Mount Lulu Fakahiga, a humble 440 feet high, proving, he writes, that you can make a mountain out of a molehill. He'd found a little slice of Pacific Island paradise hidden somewhere between Fiji and Samoa. But if he thought Wallace was good, his next stop, its sister island of Fuchuna, was utter bliss. And the welcome he got was out of this world. Sat next to someone on the plane, and he immediately asked, invited me to come stay with him. He had a spare house on top of the hill with the most beautiful views, looking down at palm trees and then just water as far as you can see. And then he took me to meet the king. Yes, another king. That's basically what Brian does. He goes around meeting kings of tiny kingdoms in the middle of nowhere. But here it was Bastille Day, which is like France's version of the 4th of July. And as a French protectorate, Wallace and Fortuna got in on the celebrations too. And he must have made a good impression with the king because he was immediately invited to a party. And they were drinking kava, which is made from a root of a kava tree. But traditionally, you get the root of the tree and someone chews it in their mouth and breaks it all up and spits it in a bowl. And then they add some water to it, right? And then you drink it. So luckily they didn't do the traditional way. They were just bashing it in a, bashing it in a bowl. And then you just sit around on the floor and it's in a coconut cup and it just gets passed around. And it sort of tastes like dirty dish water. It's the best way to, to describe how it tastes like. And it's sort of like your lips start going numb, first of all. And then, you know, it, you do start to feel a little bit tipsy and a bit weird, you know. <laughs> I know some of them just knock it back like crazy. And at one point, I, after I've had a few carvers, I said, um, I really need to go to the toilet. And he says, I can use the toilet in the king's house. So it took me across the road to the king's house. We went to the side of this house and there was a palm tree and we just weed on the palm tree. But that was the king's toilet. What would Her Majesty have said about that? But in between the excessive carver drinking and urinating on the king's palm tree, he heard about an island called Alofi, just off the coast of Fortuna. It's completely deserted. No one lives there. Well, not anymore. Apparently, 150 years ago, cannibals sailed over and ate them all. But that's another story. His friend from the plane who had put him up, Alicio, arranged for some friends to take him over to camp for the night and experience that true castaway fantasy that all of us have had at one point or another. And boy, did he get it. Approaching this island, it is like everything that you've seen in a jigsaw puzzle or a postcard or every cliched uh, South Pacific thing where a beach where it was just white talcum powder sand, um, the aqua, aqua blue water, just coral only metres off with fish, brightly coloured spotted stripes, fish swimming around and the palms literally hanging over the beach, not a footprint on the sand. And so I sat on the beach and I had my supplies with me, which was I had some crackers, some spam and some bananas and some water. So I pretty much just spent the day not doing anything, just walking up and down the beach, sitting down, reading a book, looking out at the water, going for a swim, watched the most perfect sunset, had my dinner on the beach, you know, my, my spam and my crackers, um, the, the best restaurant, you know. And then the stars, I've never seen so many stars before in my life because there's no light anywhere. And when there's so many stars, there's clouds of them. Like we see in the city when you just see one or two, there was clouds of, of stars. And it was so bright, I could sit there and read my book even when it got dark because just from the moon and the stars and the reflection of the white, white sand. And then I just made my bed, some palm fronds, had this great night's sleep and the next morning, you know, waking up, I remember I was 
walked to the beach and I thought, someone's been here, there's footprints all up and down the beach. But they were just mine, just from me wandering up and down the beach the day before. And at one point a yacht went past and I thought, don't you dare come to my island, this is my island. And it was. For one night, Alofi was his island and his alone. This was the beach I'd been searching for all of my traveling life, he writes. A flawless white narrow beach guarded by listing palms that bowed over the water just as they do in idyllic postcards. He swam, he snorkeled, he walked the beach, explored the jungle, and slept that night in an open-sided fale, a kind of lean-to used occasionally by local farmers who harvest crops in the jungle. Palm leaves for a bed and the stars for a blanket. Absolute tropical perfection. Aside from the spam for dinner, what is all that about? But it was amazing, and so was Fortuna. From the moment he met Alicia on the plane, he was given a place to stay for free, a beautiful house overlooking the sea. He was invited to parties. He made friends and was even invited to Grandma's house for a feast. He had taken a leap of faith into the unknown, and Fortuna had caught him with open arms. But next up was an even bigger leap of faith and somewhere completely different. Kyrgyzstan, deep in the mountains of Central Asia. And again, he lucked out, meeting someone on the plane who invited him to her mom's house for tea as soon as they landed. Just someone he met on the plane. His banter must be world class. And that chance meeting set him off on a random direction that would end up defining his entire trip. So when I was in Togo, I had a, I bought a map, but I decided in Kyrgyzstan not to have a map. I just got on buses and went somewhere. So I'd spoken to someone, uh, the, 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 the girl who met at the airport, and she suggested this place to go to called Chopin Alta. So it was on a, a lake. And again, I had no idea. So it's the second biggest alpine lake in the world after Lake Titicaca. It's massive. So I got on a bus and ended up by this lake. And... Um, you stay in a cheap guest house and great food. And so then from, from there was when the re- adventure really started because I got on a bus and saw in the Cyrillic um, uh, language, so I couldn't understand what's on the front of the bus. I didn't even know where I was buying a fare to. And then the bus would stop along the way and I got off, stopped off at this village that looked less dustier than the other villages we'd stopped at. So I decided to get out. And then uh, I asked... I knew very little Russian, but I knew how to say room in Russian. And I asked someone and this uh, lady took me to her house and ended up staying in the room. The son was in university or had moved to home or whatever. They didn't speak any English at all. And then, so I sat down and had dinner with them and then sat and watched tele- television in there and drank vodka and woke up in the morning. Then I got on a bus and went to the next town. And, and then I continued around the lake and... Um, uh, again, got off at a major town. Someone had told me I should go visit a certain place. So I went to visit a caracol, it was called. I mean, it was a wonderful place. I went to the, this Sunday market where they sell, sell animals and that is unchanged for centuries. And getting there early in the morning and they're all in their traditional Kyrgyz garb. They're in these robes and these black, beautiful felt hats with sort of coloured flowers through them. And there was a normal market with sections to sell camels or eagles or um, sheep and it's like a car boot sale they have in England where you have a car boot sale where people you know they open up the boot and you sell stuff and there's people with their cars with the boot open or the trunk open and there was just about like three sheep in there or something you know and they were just people turn up and just selling all their animals but I met two two English guys 
and they they both had the funny because they both had the tall Kyrgyz hat on, but they had like you know North Face jackets on, and um, they said they were going up to this two day hike up into the mountains, and I said, oh, can I come? And they said, yeah. So they'd organised a driver, and we drove up, and the, the roads the roads were so bad at one point that we had to get out so that and because. And the driver just driving, it looked like a, a toy car being thrown down a hill, you know, like to get across because all these boulders the size of other cars just to drive across. And we stopped in this place, you know, in this valley, and it was so the Tianxian Mountains, I said, they're up to seven and a half thousand meters, 24,000 feet, and just giant mountains. And I don't know how high we were then, but we just in the middle of nowhere. And then the next, we got up very early the next morning and we had a guide who kept on disappearing, by the way, and we hiked for like 11 hours and right up to a top of a... And just the scenery changed. It had a bit of snow the night before. We were walking through a bit of snow and then fields that I joked looked like this opening scene from The Sound of Music. I was expecting, you know, Maria von Trapp to come running over the hill. And then to sort of like gravel and then we we're walking through just... And the mountains were all very sharp. And the last the last climb was this gravel that just wasn't very high, but it took us an hour to get to the top. And when we got to the top, over this glacier lake, which was just aqua blue with just the this steep, jagged mountains going straight into it. You can imagine somewhere like that, whether it's in America or even if you're in Nepal, there'd be other people around. But we were the only people. There's no one. There'd be no one within miles and miles. And so that was just stunning, just doing that. It felt like you were... You know, had the mountains to yourself. The hike was hard. Their guide basically ditched them, fog came in, and for a short time, Brian actually got lost. They had altitude sickness, but it was worth it because the mountains of Kyrgyzstan are some of the most beautiful in the world. I clambered the last few meters, he writes, puffing and panting, and then crossed a rock-spangled ice plateau and stopped on top of a ridge, looking down at a vast amphitheater. What little breath I had left was taken away by the view in front of me, as mountain summits rose up like dragon's teeth all around, a brilliant emerald lake far below. The scale of this superb setting and the pristine nature of the mountains was overwhelming. A wild and icy wind buffeted me, but I didn't feel it. He'd hopped on a random bus, got off at a random town, met two random travellers, and hiked up a random mountain summit he knew absolutely nothing about. But his roll of the dice was rewarded with emerald lakes and dragon's teeth of mountain summits all around. His adventure was now nearing the end. He'd torn up the guidebook and explored the remotest corners of Africa, the South Pacific, and Asia. But it wasn't quite over yet. Because just before he was about to leave, he stumbled upon another truly amazing experience he would never have found if he had his head stuck in a guidebook. While I was in Caracol, I noticed there was a poster on the wall of someone in, in the office, of some, someone standing there with a big eagle on their arm. So I, I, was, I pointed to the poster and I said to the girl, you know, I didn't speak much English, can I do that? And she was like, couldn't understand it. She ended up ringing her cousin who came, <laughs> came and, and she said, I think I've got a friend. And she rang a couple of people and she said to me, catch a bus to this place, get off and ask for this long-winded name of a person. And I thought, all right. So I got to this town in the middle of nowhere, got, got, they put me on the bus and um, I just asked someone and they said, come, come. And they put me in a car and drove me out through the countryside into like desert. It was like a desert type landscape. 
um, with these hills and then the lake. We're on the other side of the lake. It's still on the lake in front of us. And I thought, okay, well, this is where I get killed. But uh, he's going to get kidnapped or something. But then we come across a hill and then there's three yurts in the middle of nowhere and the eagle hunter. And so I stayed with them for a, a couple of days and beautiful mountain eagle, which was probably three feet high or something. So the next morning we went out on horse. He had this wooden wooden sort of strut thing holding up his arm to hold the eagle because it was so heavy. We we're riding the horses up and down these hills looking to, uh, to you know, we caught some caught a hare and we had that for dinner that night because eagles have, you know, amazing eyesight for a start, like eight times better than ours or whatever it is. So he's riding around and just looking to see if the eagle can see um, any hares or uh, foxes or whatever it is. And then, so the eagle will spot it. And so he'll release the eagle and then he'll go and get it. Then he races down to the to get it before it tears it to shreds, you know. <laughs> and then they sell the they sell the fur, and then they eat, eat the the meat for them and the eagle. He said, you know, we keep the eagle. The eagle was like three years old. And he said we keep it to its ten, and then we let it go so we can mate, and you know, back into the wild again. But it was just an amazing experience. Just the the landscape. It just felt like you're on the moon. He began with mist flights and meetings with Tagoan kings and ended with moonscapes of mountains and eagle hunters of Kyrgyzstan. Well, sort of. His last night, he actually ended up singing drunk karaoke with a bunch of local lads in the capital, Bishkek. Because, you know, as he says in the book, what would have Marco Polo, Livingston and Captain Cook done at the end of an expedition except get tanked in a local nightclub? Fair enough. But there's also a quote that he cites at the end of the book, and it says, you have to have gone somewhere new to be an explorer. You have to have discovered somewhere previously unknown to the world. Explorers, by that definition, is about charting maps and setting records and being the first. It's about how the world views you. But for Brian, that completely misses the point. And that's what this story is all about. I didn't go anywhere new, but I did go to places that were totally new to me. And exploration isn't just about charting the world's surface or discovering a lost tribe, it's about discovering it for yourself. I felt like I was an explorer, but because everything was new, I hadn't seen any pictures of anything to see what it looked like, or I hadn't uh, you know, read about any of it. There was a few occasions where I stumbled across something that was probably in a guidebook because it's a tourist destination. But it was like so wow, because I hadn't, I didn't know that's what it was like. But I said, the interesting thing is, you know, since then, of course, I, I do my research and I have my, my guidebooks and everything else. But, and I even said in the book, I said, you know, like, just um, if you go somewhere, just put your guidebook away. And if you're in a city and just wander the streets, you know, like, and you might walk past somewhere where you see, oh, it's just a lot of locals eating there. I'll eat there. It might not be in the guidebook, but, and I've done that so many times and had some great food or, and I got completely and utterly lost, but loved every minute of it because you know you can find your way back eventually, you know. So I still take my guidebook, but I'll just put it away more often. We can all be explorers and we don't have to risk our lives or set out on extreme expeditions to do so. That's the point of Brian's story. He is in no way a hardcore adventurer. He likes beers and beds and chicken and chips. But that's what's so inspiring. Brian's just a normal bloke. And if he can do it, so can we. 
In the days of the explorers of old, of Marco Polo and Livingston and Cook, explorers drew our world. They turned blank spaces on the map into ordered lines. In these days of Google and guidebooks to every country on earth, there's not many blank spaces left, none that most of us will ever reach. But that's okay, because exploration isn't about what the rest of the world does or doesn't know. It isn't about them. It's about you. It's about you discovering something new for yourself. There are mysteries and wonders everywhere, entire countries and cultures and moonscapes, valleys of butterflies and emerald lakes you know nothing about, just waiting to be found. Good. Keep it that way. Because we can all be explorers, real explorers, modern explorers. All we have to do is close our computer, tear up the guidebook, and step into the unknown. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for taking us on this madcap adventure. It's such a great idea for a book. It's called Where's Wallace? That's W-A-L-L-I-S with a little subheading, Travels Without a Guidebook. You can find it just about anywhere along with all his other titles. And the best place to go and connect with him directly is brianthacker.tv, brianthacker.tv. He's an awesome bloke. Drop him a line, hang out. You're going to have some fun. Remember, if you enjoy this show and think it's worth the cost of a pint a month, then please consider showing your support by becoming a patron of the show. The link is in the show notes, the website armchair-explorer.com, or just head over to patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast. If you believe in the same values that we promote on this show, love for the outdoors, living life to the full, and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours, then give what you can and help spread that message to other people that might need it too. Thank you so much for whatever you can do. So that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this community. And remember to keep exploring because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. <laughs>